0: The door is wide open for anyone to walk through, but there's only one door, and it's Jesus. John 14, that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Um, I had a tough time with this one. Here's the problem. John 14 is the very deep, theologically, of a chapter. And I thought, I'd really like to break it up over a couple of different weeks, but I don't want to remove the context because... This is one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples while they're still in the upper room after having the Last Supper. Now, I will say this. The chapters and verses in Scripture, they weren't always there. They're not part of the original writing in Scripture. What they give us is the ability to reference point and make it easier to memorize and and call back on things. But some of the chapters and verses have odd breaks. Um, They might just be there to shorten a chapter so that it doesn't go on forever. We don't really know why they were decided to be broken up in this particular way. Because you can look at John 14 and disconnect it from John 13. And John 13, which we spoke about last week, was the Last Supper. Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, sharing the Passover meal, instituting communion, Um, But this is the conversation they had during that meal. And so it's not separate from John 13. It's the same night. It's in the same room, and it's during that dinner. And if you can think of conversations that you have with close relatives and family, uh, you might be surprised, because the conversation that Jesus has is very different. Let me give you an example. Now, every year. When my family gets together for, say, Christmas, how many of you have like an extended family gathering around Christmas time? Does that seem like a pretty normal thing to do? How many of you also have this problem with your extended family? They tell the exact same stories every year. Do you tell the same story every year? I do. Um, Because why not just get in on the joy of it all, I guess. If you're going to bore me with the same story, I'm going to bore you with the same story. That's how I look at it. Now, every year this is the story that I tell because they've bothered me with all of their same stories. So here's my story. Uh, When I was younger, I have this cousin whose name is Richie. And he's a few years older than me. And as we got older, you know, he's taller and thinner and makes a lot of money. So he's nothing like me at all anymore. But when we were little kids, we looked almost identical. Um, and we were nearly the same height. We had exactly the same hair color and eye color, and we looked identical. And so one weekend, my dad and I, and my cousin Richie and his dad, my uncle Rick, were going fishing. And we all met up at a restaurant in the morning uh, before we went out fishing. And then Richie and I switched cars. And he rode with my dad and I rode with his dad to the lake where we were to go fishing. Now, on the way, my uncle was really mad at my cousin for something. I don't know what he did or how he misbehaved that morning that brought on the wrath of my uncle. But I took the brunt of it because the whole ride to the lake, I was just getting lectured and yelled at, but I had no idea what was going on. And when he finally stopped, you know, and his face turned back to a normal color because he wasn't yelling anymore, I said, Uncle Rick, I'm not Richie. (laughs) And that's my story that I tell every year. And those are the kinds of things, joke, little anecdotes that we tell When we gather together but this is Jesus's last meal before the crucifixion and he gathered his disciples together and he kept it intimate and it was only his followers that were with him and this is the conversation that he had with them his conversation is considerably more deep now this conversation takes place it seems after Judas left the rest of the disciples are thinking Judas is on his way to go take care of the poor or to buy supplies for the poor because they didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, whatever you do, do quickly. And because Judas had control of the money, they thought he was doing the customary thing of taking care of those in need. Um, Because he's a follower of Jesus, how could he be doing something evil? But he was. And now those who would not betray him are left, and Jesus is discussing with the eleven And he says this, now this is after he's already told Peter that Peter was going to deny him three times. And so there's shock on their faces, and Jesus looks up and he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. A better translation of that would be rooms or apartments, but in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. So, Let's stop there and pause for a moment because there's a lot in here. The first four verses, Jesus says, Don't be troubled. I'm going away. But where I go, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. If that weren't the truth, I wouldn't say this. But where I go, you will come with me and I will come back again and receive you to myself. So that's what Jesus says here. And he's saying this at the Last Supper where they're having the Passover meal, likely during the last glass of wine that they're sharing at the Passover meal. This is important. Now here's the other part of chapters and verses that make things messy sometimes. Because we isolate things, we forget that it's all connected. John 14 is connected to John 1. It's not its own story. It's connected all the way through. Well, the first miracle that Jesus ever did is recorded in the Gospel of John, and only the Gospel of John. And the first miracle that Jesus did was turning water into wine at a wedding in Galilee. It's interesting that now they're drinking the last cup of wine at the Passover dinner, which also is eerily similar in practice to the cup of wine you would have at the marriage table. And what Jesus is saying is very culturally appropriate to the Galilean wedding ceremony. And interestingly enough, the only disciple who wasn't there is Judas, and Judas is the only disciple of Jesus's who wasn't from Galilee. And he's making a cultural reference to something that all of them would have understood. Let me explain. The Galilean wedding goes something like this. The fathers would meet and they would arrange a wedding between a son and a daughter. right? And so the father would prepare. The father of the son would make arrangements with the daughter for the bride of his son and what the dowry was going to be, and they would make those plans. When it came time, when they were of marriageable age, and the appropriate time had taken over, the son would then go to the bride's house and pay the dowry for his bride. And he would stay for a little bit, have a little celebration, and leave and go back to his father's house. At that point, the engagement period has begun. They are officially together. Now, when he goes back to his father's house, what he does, because his inheritance is the father's land, is he would build rooms onto his father's property, build a house or a room or an expansion for him and his bride. Without knowing when his father would allow him to go collect his bride. This means the bride would have no idea when her husband would come for her, when the bridegroom would come for her. So she always had to be prepared. Though the timeline was about a year, it was undetermined. The only person who had that information and who would pick the date for the wedding is the father of the groom. And when he decided that it was time to collect his bride, he would tell his son, usually in the middle of the night, to go get his bride. And then he would ride out to meet his bride. And because the bride, knowing that the marriage time was getting close, she would have to always be prepared. And so people would be looking out for this as they knew the time was near without knowing when it was going to come. And so when the bridegroom was on his way and someone saw him on his way, they would blow a shofar trumpet to announce that the wedding was happening. And then the bride and her bridesmaids and all of those who were going to attend the wedding would go out and meet the groom while he was on his way to collect his bride. And when they met, they would turn around and head back to the father's house. And when they got to the father's house, the bride and the groom would have time together before they came out and celebrated in the wedding feast and the wedding ceremony. Now, from the time that the groom leaves when he pays his dowry until they have that wedding ceremony, the groom abstains from wine. Now, I remember in chapter 13, Jesus said that he looked forward to when he would experience wine again because this would be the last time he would experience this meal until he came again. And so these four verses, for those who believe in a rapture happening before the tribulation period, seems pretty consequential because it's the same story. Jesus came to pay the price for his bride on the cross. And this is the celebration for that payment and the last time he will experience that drink before his return. After paying the dowry for his bride, he goes back to his father's house. He ascends into heaven after the resurrection. And this is what he's been doing. He's been preparing a place for you. In his father's house, there are many mansions or many rooms. He's building a place for his bride, the church. And he tells his church that where he goes, they will also be. So if Jesus didn't come to collect his church until the end of the tribulation, what is he building rooms for? If we were just coming right back to the the earth, if we never got to live in them. And so this is the idea. Jesus is saying... Where I go, you will also be with me. And then he says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. So that's the first part, just the first four verses, It's pretty deep. I almost thought about just doing the first six verses today. But I'm going to move on. If you have questions, ask me later. Verse 5. Now, after Jesus says all of this, and this is something they should have caught on to, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? That's a good question. I like that Thomas is always willing to question. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap because he asks questions like this or after the resurrection, he says, I won't believe until you show me the scars in his hands and, the, and his side and I can put my fingers in the holes. So Thomas gets a bad rap, but he asked the questions we all would have asked if we were there. And Jesus is saying something that they don't quite understand, and no one else is willing to speak up. You ever have that moment in your school days where you had a question, but you didn't want to be the person who looked like they didn't understand what the teacher was saying? But then there's that one kid in class who's completely not self-aware and just says whatever comes to his mind. And when he finally asks a question that you need to help with, you're like, thank goodness he's here because I wasn't going to ask. I feel like that's Thomas. Thomas. No one's going to say anything because they don't want to defy Jesus. This seems like a good moment. And Thomas goes, hey, Jesus, I don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? How do we get there? And Jesus says, this is important, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, this is a problem if you have a coexist bumper sticker on your car. Because Jesus is making a very exclusive claim. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to get to God, the only way to get to the Father is through him and his sacrifice. There's only one way. The door is wide open for anyone to walk through, but there's only one door. And it's Jesus. He says, I am the way to get there. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. That's a huge claim. Jesus is explicitly saying, he's God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. You know him because you know me. Um, It's these claims that get Jesus killed. Because the people who lived at the time knew what Jesus was saying. There were no questions about whether or not Jesus was claiming to be God. He absolutely claimed to be God. And then he proved it because he raised himself from death three days later. So Philip now chimes in. It's not one disciple, then another. Thomas doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus gives him the answer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and is it sufficient for us? Now, this is unique because Jesus just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. You know God because I am God. We're the same. And Philip says, uh, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, what Jesus is doing, and what we're going to see through this whole chapter, is the picture of the Trinity becoming clearer. Jesus is explaining the Trinity to his disciples. He's saying, I am in the Father. I submit to the authority of the Father, but I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We are one in the same. If you've seen me, you've seen him. I am God, and the only way to get to God is through me. And then he says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And what he's saying is, Philip, Thomas, Peter, all of you who've been with me for the last three and a half years, you've seen some things. You've seen me turn water into wine. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me calm the storm when all of you were afraid you were going to die. You've seen me turn blind people into people who can see. You've seen the lame be able to walk. You've seen the deaf be able to hear. You've seen the blind be able to see. And if that wasn't enough, remember like a week ago, you saw Lazarus die and come back to life? I'm about to do that to myself, guys. What you've seen If you can't comprehend it, at at least grasp what you've seen me do and take that as a testimony in itself. Jesus is clearly God. Verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do because I go to my Father. All right, I got to stop there and pause for a minute. Because let's think about this. I just listed a whole bunch of things that Jesus did, including resurrect himself, as well as Lazarus. And he also resurrected two others from the dead. He made blind people see and deaf people hear, and he healed lepers and walked on water. Um, I don't know about you. I can't do any of that. But Jesus is saying here that the church, and specifically his disciples, will do greater things than he did. What on earth does he mean by that? Because Peter was also crucified, but he stayed dead. Paul was beheaded, and he stayed dead. John was exiled to the island of Patmos and eventually allowed to come back, and then he died of natural causes and is still dead. So, what do you mean? What What is the greater works that's going to happen because of the church? Well, let's not worry too much about the miraculous and understand what the work actually is. The point of Jesus's works were to prove that he's God and to spread the gospel for those who would believe. And the gospel, when Jesus was alive, ex- remained almost exclusively in Judea, a little bit in Samaria. And that was the extent of it. But when the church took over, it exploded throughout all of Israel. And then Paul goes off into Asia Minor, and others go down into Ethiopia and into Africa, and others head over into the other parts of Europe. And the gospel spreads throughout the world. And the whole world worships Yahweh because of the church. Yes, it's because of the power that we get through Jesus and his sacrifice and what he did, but he gave us that work to do, and that work is being done now, still. There are still people who need to hear the gospel that didn't have the opportunity to hear it in places where they didn't have the opportunity to hear it when Jesus was alive. And so the greater works actually Is the works, not the miracles, but the spreading of the gospel and the changing of hearts and offering eternal salvation. You know what? It would be wonderful if I had the power to heal people. I don't. But what's better than healing someone's immediate ailment that will only cause them a temporary, their life to go on temporarily longer? is the message of the gospel, which can give give them eternal salvation and eternal life. And that is the greatest work that anyone can give. And that work has been going on by the church. It is our mission. And so then Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now let's be careful not to abuse what this means. As Jesus is talking about the greater works that the church will do, he's saying, if you're in line with the mission of Jesus and you are asking in Jesus' name for the mission to be accomplished, Jesus will grant you the power to be able to do it. It doesn't mean that a Bugatti is going to end up in your driveway tomorrow. Sorry. It doesn't mean that we get what we want because we ask in a selfish way for the things of God, it's when we are on mission with Jesus and he is at the center of what we're doing, if we ask in his name, he'll grant us the power to do it. And so he says, if you love me, which by the way, following that statement, it's important that this is the next thing Jesus says. You ask for something in Jesus' name, he'll do it. If you love me, Keep my commandments, meaning it's not out of selfish reasons. You love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, up to this point, what we've seen from Jesus is he's made a cultural reference that the Galileans would have understood to the Galilean wedding. Then he went on to talk about how Jesus and the Father are connected, how they are the same. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. They are one and the same. And now he says he's leaving. But he's going to pray that we will receive another helper that he may abide with us forever, the spirit of truth. So we've seen the Father, we've seen the Son, and now we're getting a look at the Holy Spirit. And what does this mean? Jesus uses an interesting phrase because in verse 16, when when he says, I pray the Father, he will give you another helper. Now, there's a couple of Greek words that could have been translated into the word another. There's the word heteros which can be translated to another. Now, for instance, as an example, uh, if I was writing a document and I had a pen, and the pen ran out of ink, and I said, can you get me another? But in Greek, I use the word heteros. You would be looking to give me another writing implement, not necessarily a pen. It's another of a different kind. So it's, it's similar, but not exact. So you could give me a crayon, and now my legal document has become a laughingstock because I didn't ask for the same thing. You could get me a marker. You could get me a dry erase marker. It's similar, but it's not the same. But that's not the word Jesus uses to describe the spirit of truth. He doesn't use the word heteros. He uses the word alos, which means another of the same kind. So if I was writing a document and I said, could you get me another pen or another and I use the word alos, you would give me another pen because you you would be giving me something of the same kind. So Jesus is saying the helper that's coming is just like me. He is God. And if he dwells with you, God dwells with you. It's all the same. And so now you've seen through this whole chapter, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Three persons. Does that make sense? No. But we'll get to that at the end. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells in you or with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So, after the Spirit is with us, eventually Jesus will come back for them, for his church, for his bride. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. At that day, you will know me, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So that was a lot of ins, and a lot of things are in other things. Uh, I wish I had thought to do this today. But there's a message I gave once at at uh, at youth group where I used different Tupperware to explain this. So, I'm just going to illustrate that with words. And so if you're listening on the recording, you didn't miss anything. But here's the idea. Now, uh, I would have this little like plastic ice cube and I would say like this is Jesus, okay? And now this Jesus, we like Jesus in this format because Jesus is small and controllable and we can put him in our pocket and we can hide him when other people are looking at us. And we can pull him out when it seems appropriate and we won't get persecuted for it or we won't get laughed at and we won't become a laughing stock. We can pull Jesus out of our pocket and we like to hide him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Father is in Jesus, Jesus is in the Father, and uh, we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. So what does that look like? So then I would put the ice cube inside of a Tupperware and I would say, See, Jesus is in us, a piece of Tupperware. And then I would put that Tupperware inside of a bigger piece of Tupperware and I would say, See, we're, Jesus is in us, but we're in Jesus and Jesus surrounds us. And then I would say, See, now Jesus is in the Father. And I would put that piece of Tupperware in a bigger piece of Tupperware. And I'd say, See, Jesus is in the Father. So we're in Jesus, Jesus is in us. And then Jesus is in the Father. And then I'd put that into a bigger piece of Tupperware, and I'd say Jesus is in the Father. or Father is in Jesus. And so you'd see one Tupperware with lots of different layers inside of it. And all the way at the center is this little cube, and then surrounding it is a small piece of Tupperware that says us. And so when you look at it, what do you see? You don't see us anymore. You see Jesus. Because Jesus isn't something we hide in our pocket. If Jesus has changed your life, if you've given your life and the Holy Spirit has dwelt in you, which means Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus, who is in the Father and the Father is in him, that it's all-encompassing. It changes your whole world, not just Sundays. And so as you get closer and closer to him and you draw closer and closer to him and the Spirit has changed you from the inside out, what the world should see when they look at you, They can't see you through all the layers because you just exude Jesus because of all the way that those layers wrap around us. And that's what's being said here. You want to know why we can do those great works, why we can spread the gospel? Because we've we've been given the power. We've been given the ability that if we ask for it, to do the works that Jesus has for us, for the world to see Jesus, then we can do it. Now, I will say I'm not one for it's awkward because I do this for a living, but I'm not one who likes attention. I don't particularly enjoy public speaking. Uh, I think I can do it, but it has nothing to do with me. I don't like telling stories about myself, and I don't like to be the center of attention. If I could fade into the background and never be seen again, I would do that. I like isolation. I am an introvert's introvert. Other introverts look at me and they think, you're a little too introverted. Like if I could live in a bunker by myself and never be seen from or heard from again, I would do it. I just, I don't like being out there, but my comfort and my <laughs> My desire to just fade into the background and just let the world pass me by does not match the mission that Jesus has given me. And because of that, I do this. And I ask him every week to help me because this is not in the normal realm of things that I would do. And it's part of the reason that I like to teach this way. I like to go through the scriptures verse by verse, book by book, because it's not about what I have to choose or what I want to tell you or what message or opinion I have that I want to give to you. It's really about opening up God's word and seeing what's inside and dealing with whatever's in front of me, whether or not I'd like to talk about it. And so I hope that out in the world or up here that I'm much more comfortable with the idea of you looking up here and not seeing me. I'd rather you see Jesus. And so I hope that that's what the Holy Spirit helps me do. And I hope that you get to meet Jesus through our services and experience the Holy Spirit and see the Bible come to life. That's why we're named what we're named. And that's the power and that's the depiction that Jesus is giving us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How when your worldview is completely changed and your whole world and you're changed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit, it gives you the opportunity to be surrounded and enclosed and enveloped in Jesus. So that, that's what the world can see. That's what I strive for. Now, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you'll see me because I live, you will live also at that day. You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I hope that statement makes a little more sense now. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, that's important. (laughs) Judas Iscariot is not here. This Judas is, in other Gospels, uh, Thaddeus. It's just another name they use to describe him. But Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, it's a good question, by the way. Let's, let's all be excited to hear the answer. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there you go. How's he going to do it? Through loving him and him sending the Holy Spirit onto you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll make you remember and see things you didn't see before. Now, this is very apparent in the early church, because I'll tell you, a group of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners who had no idea what they were doing and seemed clumsy and clueless for three and a half years Jesus resurrects, ascends, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and now all of a sudden they're really eloquent and they're speaking like the teachers of Israel don't speak. Peter, who consistently put his foot in his mouth all throughout the ministry of Jesus, after the resurrection is suddenly the most well-spoken guy you've ever heard. How is this possible? The Holy Spirit. How is he able to recall Scripture after Scripture and that points to Jesus and be so convincing that in the city of Jerusalem, where the resurrection would have happened, that he convinced 3,000 people in one day to come to Jesus. Power of the Holy Spirit gave him what he didn't have. Peter had passion. Peter had love for Jesus. and Peter had a desire to follow him. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit empowered him that he became useful. And if you love Jesus, he will fill you with the Holy Spirit. Now, not all of us are going to get the same gifts, uh, and that's a different message for another time. But you can trust that you will receive gifts from the Holy Spirit to be used for the mission of the gospel. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now, let's just define this for a minute. Now, he's telling his disciples he's going away. They still don't seem to understand what that means. They will in a few hours. Because in a few hours, Jesus is going to get arrested, he's going to be put on trial, and he's going to be crucified. So they're going to understand what he means, and they're going to be there when he gets buried. But right now they don't seem to understand what's going on. But then he says, my father is greater than I. Now this has been taken out of context and used inappropriately um, by several groups. We'll just put it that way. The point is, when Jesus took on flesh, he was fully God, but he was also fully human. And that means that he submitted himself to be put in time and to restrict himself from some of the power. In fact, one of the things that Jesus prays, and you see this in the other Gospels, is that he, and we'll see this soon, he prays to be restored to the glory that he had with his Father before the foundations of the earth. That means that he was stripped of some of that glory when he took on human flesh, and he did that on purpose so that he could experience what we experience, go through what we go through, so that his sacrifice could be pure for us. And so in this moment, the Father is greater because Jesus has submitted himself to the authority of the Father as he was put in the flesh and has restricted himself from some of the glory he used to have, and he did that on our behalf. And that's a good thing. It doesn't make him less God. It just means he has done even more for us by becoming fully human. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. So now Jesus is really getting to the point. Look, I'm telling you a lot of things. You don't understand it, but when it happens, this will all click and make sense. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me, uh, gave me commandments, so I do arise. Let us go from here. So he's saying, it's going to be a rough road ahead. The prince of the earth, the ruler of this world, Satan, is coming. He doesn't have anything to do with me. He's very opposed to me. He's going to make it difficult. But I have come to fulfill the commandments of the Father, and I've come to do what needs to be done. You don't understand it yet, but when you see it, you'll know. And then Jesus says, arise, let us go from here. Now imagine this bomb being dropped on you. You don't understand what he's saying. He's saying he's leaving, but he's coming back. He mentioned something that was reminiscent of a wedding that he wouldn't share in wine again until he comes back. What is all of this? What is he talking about? And then he just says, let's go. Let's take a walk. Now, chapter 13, chapter 14, which we just went through, and the next couple of, next few chapters, are all the same night. They're all happening at the same time. They've now left the upper room where they were having dinner, and they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're walking to the place where Jesus gets arrested. And at the end of the meal, at the end of their time in the upper room, Jesus just says, let's go. Those seem like not that big of a deal, not important words. I say it all the time. I say it to my wife constantly. Because when it's time to get ready, I have to say it five times before we're out the door. Let's go because I have something to do. I have somewhere I need to be. I have a mission. Usually we're on the same team here that we are looking to accomplish. If we're going to the store to get groceries, I don't wanna get home too late. I don't wanna spend my whole day wasting this time doing this. I have something I need to accomplish. Let's go. Now, the disciples are completely unaware of what they're heading towards, but Jesus says these words knowing full well what he's in store for. When he says, let's go, he's leaving the comfort and the security of the upper room to go out into the open garden of Gethsemane, where he knows Judas will track him down in betrayal, and he'll get arrested and brought to the temple where he gets punched, spit on, his beard ripped out, where he eventually will get led from there to another trial in front of Pontius Pilate, to another trial in front of Herod, to back to Pontius Pilate again, where he will be put to death and put on trial for what he has done. And what he's done, nothing wrong, other than claim to be God, which he is. And he knows full well what he's about to do. And to all he says to his disciples, Is let's go. He's not waiting. He knows his mission. And because of what he did, we're all here. We're all here celebrating what he did for us because he can change you from the inside out. That sacrifice that he knows he's headed towards, he doesn't waste time. And he brings his closest along with him so that they can be the ones when they understand and they see what happens, it's all going to click for them and the world's going to change forever. And their message was brought to us all the way to today because Jesus didn't hesitate. When dinner was over, and his time was up, he said, let's go. And now he invites us all along to participate in the mission. And he says, if you're on mission with me, I'll give you what you ask for. All you got to do is ask for it. So let's do that. Let's ask right now. Father God, thank you. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for being willing to send your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to go through this horror. To go through... This sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for being willing and not hesitating to go to the cross on our behalf so that we can experience salvation. And through that, the power of the Holy Spirit to change the world. God, the world is dark. And I want to seek the kingdom of heaven first. And boy, do I look forward to you coming to collect your bride. I look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I look forward to experiencing my room that you've prepared for me. But in between now and that time, there's a mission. There's people who need to hear the gospel. And you've tasked us with spreading it. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you give us the insight, the wisdom, the creativity, and the power to do so to make a difference in this region and anywhere else you allow us to reach. In Jesus' name, amen.